Amen. You will need a Bible this morning. We've read John 20. We're going to work our way through this passage. There is an outline in the bulletin. If you've picked up a bulletin on the way in this morning, you can track along with some of the main ideas that we're going to talk about. In our study in the Gospel of John, we've made it to the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. And this morning, we're going to look at three of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Not the only post-resurrection appearances of the risen Christ, but three of them, as John details them. After this morning, we only have two more Sundays in the Gospel of John. So it's been a long uh, slide through this gospel. We've worked through it for several years now. Uh, at the beginning of May, we're going to start a new sermon series in the book of Jeremiah. Now, I'll give you a warning. Jeremiah, uh, by word count, is the longest book in the Bible. It has over 1,300 verses, and we are not going to look at all of them because Jeremiah is very verbose, and he says a lot of things with a lot of words, and you don't have to look at every verse in the book to understand the main ideas of the book, but we're going to spend about 20 weeks working through the book of Jeremiah, and I'm excited about that. I've never preached through the book of Jeremiah, and so I'm excited to work through it with you on Sunday mornings beginning in May and going through the summer and into early fall. We have business this morning in John 20, and I'm going to start with a bit of a disclaimer. This is in the notes if you're tracking along. I just want to say at the outset that it is not, emphasis on the word not, it is not difficult to harmonize the details of this passage with the resurrection accounts of the synoptic gospels and with the story of Pentecost from the book of Acts. And as I make that disclaimer, I am acknowledging that as John tells the story of the resurrection and these appearances and uh, this stuff about the Holy Spirit, he is telling the story differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means, if you break it down into word parts, that they see together. They look at this story and they see it from sort of the same perspective and they tell it generally in the same way. John wrote his gospel much later and he sees it from a different perspective. This sort of thing happens all the time when you're thinking about eyewitness testimony of a single event. And stories, accounts, can be different without being contradictory. And that's what we're looking at in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't tell the story exactly the same way, but there are no errors in any of the accounts. There are no contradictions between the accounts, and you can harmonize all the things that you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even into the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Now, the disclaimer comes here. My aim this morning is not to harmonize all of those details, and so as we read John 20, you may be thinking, well, I didn't think it went like that. Well, I seem to remember Pentecost being different. Well, I seem to remember Matthew telling the story of his resurrection a bit differently. You can harmonize all of those details. It's not what we're trying to do this morning. This morning, we're trying to look at these three accounts, John 20, 11 through the end of the chapter, and we're trying to connect them with one single thread that runs through each story. 
in sermon prep this week, I found myself thinking, oh, you could just do one sermon on this part, and you could do one sermon on this part, and we could have really broken this down and extended this out. But there's value in taking these stories together and seeing the one common thread that John pulls through each of these stories, and that's our aim this morning. John tells us that Mary Magdalene was the first person not to see the empty tomb necessarily, although he describes it that way, but here he's saying she's the first person to see the resurrected Jesus. And there are some odd, interesting details when you read about Mary seeing Jesus. She's really confused about this idea of resurrection. And we mentioned this last week that John says Peter and John believed. What was it that they believed? I think what they believed is Mary's account that the tomb was empty. And Mary was stuck. We saw last week, and you see it again this week. She's stuck on the idea that someone has moved Jesus' body. He's not there. And it even gets to the point in the story where Jesus appears to her, speaks to her, and she sees him, but she doesn't recognize him. We'll see this sort of thing coming up over the next two weeks as we wrap up the Gospel of John. And it brings us to an interesting sort of theological concept. When theologians talk about the accounts of Jesus' resurrection appearance, they use terms like continuity and discontinuity, sameness and difference. That's classic theological language, right? Talking out of both sides of their mouths. And what the theologians are trying to get their arms around is this idea that when Jesus rose from the dead, he really rose from the dead. It wasn't just a resuscitation, it was a resurrection. He had a physical body. And he could show up and talk to Thomas and say, Thomas, it's me, Jesus. It's the same Jesus that you knew before. Look at my hands. Touch the marks on my hands. He still bore those scars. And yet Mary can look at him and not recognize him in a sense. And some people say, well, she was just a, a blubbering, slobbering mess and she couldn't see through her tears. And Maybe, I don't know, maybe. But you see a similar detail in the next couple of weeks where the disciples sort of, they look at him and they don't ask him if it's him because they know it's him. And it's a strange thing that John would say they didn't ask him if it was him if it looked exactly the same. And so theologians say it was the same guy and there was the scars and the marks, but maybe somehow different. Same in the sense that he had a physical body. You could see him. You could touch him. Apparently Mary was clinging to him. At one point he's going to physically eat food. But different in that he got up and left the tomb without disturbing the grave clothes. And different in the sense that what John really seems to be saying is that Jesus just appears in this locked room where the disciples are hiding and they're terrified and then disappears. And we read something similar with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It, it's a physical body. It's a real body. You can touch it. You can see it. He can eat. But it's not necessarily like ours. There's sameness and there's difference. And the idea that we're trying to wrap our minds around comes down to this fact. Jesus was not just resuscitated. He wasn't just brought back to life. He was resurrected to new life. He has not just a raised physical body, but a resurrected, glorified body like the believer hopes for in the end. Now, 
We could try to sort through all these details. We can do that later. If you want to argue or talk about details, I'm happy to do that later on the side. Here's the big idea when you string these resurrection appearances together. It's very important. Jesus is the second Adam who came to undo the curse and bring life for believers. He's the second Adam. We have a lot of titles for Jesus. We call him Emmanuel. We call him the Son of God, the the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, the King of Israel. One that we don't use very often, but that is very important in the Gospel of John is this idea that Jesus is the second Adam. He's the one who came to undo the curse and to bring life to people who were under a sentence of death. What you see in this story is the idea that the Bible as a whole, the Bible is a story that comes full circle. You hear people use that phrase from time to time, right? Something has come full circle. I came across that phrase just a few days ago. There was a story on Fox Sports, and I just took a screenshot of it. It says, Jawan Howard and the Michigan Wolverines have come full circle at the NCAA tournament. In the early 90s, Jawan Howard was a player for Michigan on the Michigan basketball team. He was part of something called the Fab Five, five freshmen who started at Michigan and they made it to back-to-back NCAA championship games. They didn't win, but they played in back-to-back title games. Since then, he's gone on to do a number of other things, played in the NBA, worked as a broadcaster, but now he's back at Michigan. He's the coach at Michigan, and his team was a number one seed in the NCAA tournament, and they made it to the Elite Eight. And so the idea of this story is that things have come full circle, right? We're sort of right back to where we were 30 years ago. You understand the idea of that phrase. That's true of the Bible. The Bible is a story that comes full circle. And John, in these late chapters of his gospel, is trying to help you understand the connections between this gospel, the story of Jesus, and the book of Genesis. You'll note that Genesis 2.8 says the Lord God planted a garden. He planted a garden. You'll remember that when Corey preached from John 18... He made the observation, very astute, that Jesus was praying. John doesn't say he was praying in Gethsemane. He doesn't use the word Gethsemane. John says he was praying in a garden. And then you'll note John 19.41, in the place where he was crucified, Golgotha, there was a garden. John keeps dropping this word in. There's a garden. He's in the garden. He's dying in the garden. They're burying him in a garden so that you connect the book of Genesis with what's going on in these final moments of Jesus' life in his crucifixion. We've talked about some of this, and I just want to get your your theological, biblical imagination moving in the right direction. The book of Genesis says that in the beginning, the Lord God created on the sixth day human beings in his image, in his likeness. He gave them dominion. And the Bible says that the Lord rested on the seventh day, presumably in this garden that he created where he lived with Adam and Eve. In the book of John, what we read in Jesus' final moments is that on the sixth day, Jesus finished his work. 
The Lord God's work in Genesis was creation. Jesus' work in John was salvation. He finished his work. Do you remember what he said on the cross right before he died? It's finished. He finished the work of creation. He was the image of the invisible God. Not just an image bearer, but the image of the invisible God. And he was laid to rest on the seventh day in a garden. John's pulling all these strings from the beginning of the Bible to come full circle. He wants you to understand that humanity rebelled against the Lord in a garden and humanity was redeemed from death in a garden. He wants you to understand that humanity was plunged into sin and death in a garden and humanity was rescued from sin and death in a garden. The first Adam played a pivotal role as our representative. The second Adam plays an even greater role as our representative. John wants you to see that Jesus is the second Adam. How does he show us that? I just want to work through this passage, not looking at every detail, but looking for this one thread that runs all the way through it, thinking about how John shows us that Jesus is the second Adam. So here's the first thing I want you to see. John tells us that Mary assumed Jesus was the gardener. Now, there's a lot of interesting details in this first paragraph, starting in verse 11. Mary is there, and she's weeping. She's distraught, verse 11. Verse 14, we could really just think about what, what happened when she saw him but didn't recognize him. She saw him, but she didn't recognize that it was him. Verse 16, we could talk about this. Jesus says Mary, and immediately she recognizes him. It makes you think about Jesus saying that he was the good shepherd and his sheep know his voice. She suddenly recognizes him in this moment. Verse 17 and 18, Mary is apparently clinging to Jesus, and Jesus says, look, you can't cling to me. I'm ascending. And he doesn't say, to our Father, to our God, he says, to mine and yours, to mine and yours. What he's saying to Mary is, Mary, I'm going to return to the throne of the cosmos where I belong. You cannot physically hang on to me in this moment. There's a a change on this side of the cross, Mary. Yes, I was and I will forever be Emmanuel, God with his people, But now I'm ascending back to heaven. I'm ascending back to this place of honor and glory. Things are going to be different, Mary, on this side of the cross. And all those important things that are taking place, look at verse 15. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, why would she suppose that? Well, they're in a garden. That's an important detail. And this is not just, well, Mary was confused. This is one of the things John does throughout this gospel where he sort of throws a word or an idea or a concept out there and it it has a bit of a double meaning. She's wrong in the sense that he's not just the human gardener responsible for this garden. She's right in the sense that he is the true gardener, the second gardener. We met the first gardener in the book of Genesis. Look what we read in Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden east of Eden to work it and keep it. Gardener number one. 
what did his work result in? If you've read Genesis 3, you know that his work, rather than being fruitful and having dominion over creation, resulted in humanity being plunged into sin, into death, being placed under a curse, literally being placed under a death sentence. John is saying the second Adam, the true gardener, has come. and He's come to undo what the first Adam, the first gardener, did. How does he undo that curse? Galatians 3 explains it very clearly. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The curse that we fell under in Eden was placed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he bore the wrath of God in the place of his people. He bears the curse. He brings us life. Things are coming Full circle. Here's the second truth John lays before us. He tells us that Jesus breathed on the disciples who were hiding in fear. He breathes on the disciples who were hiding with fear. And again, if you have a biblical imagination, I don't mean like you just dream up doctrine and Bible stuff in your spare time, but I mean you've read the Bible and you've read the book of Genesis You read this section of Jesus showing up and finding the disciples and breathing on them, and you say, man, there's there's a lot of hyperlinks back to the book of Genesis. There's a lot of things that are taking me back to the book of Genesis. The first Adam sinned against the Lord God. He hid in the garden, and he was afraid. We read in this passage that the disciples who have sinned against the Lord Jesus are hiding And they are afraid. Just like the Lord came and found Adam, now the Lord Jesus Christ comes and finds the disciples. We read in the book of Genesis that the first Adam was sent out as punishment, as judgment. We read in this passage that the Lord Jesus sends out his disciples, not in punishment, not in judgment, but on a mission. A mission to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. We read in the book of Genesis that the Lord God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. And John tells you here, I know it's a a different sort of take on Pentecost and I'm telling you these can be harmonized, but he tells you here that Jesus breathed the spirit of life into the disciples. All these details are not insignificant. John wants you to see that Jesus is the second Adam. He's not hiding in the bushes like the first Adam. He's not being sent out from the presence of the Lord to die like the first Adam. He's actually breathing life into his people and he is sending them out on a mission. Now, I want you to look at verse 24. We're gonna take a a small excursus, okay? Just a small parenthesis here to talk about Thomas. Thomas gets some screen time and in verse Uh, 23, there's this receive the Holy Spirit and if you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld and they start to talk to Thomas in verse 24. Apparently, he was a twin. His nickname was the twin, Didymus. They say, verse 25, we've seen the Lord and Thomas says, unless I see in his hand the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And you know, this is where Thomas gets the nickname, Doubting Thomas. I think it's one of the most unfair, unfortunate nicknames in the whole Bible. 
Nicknames are funny things, right? I got a picture this week from somebody you all know. I'll put the picture up on the screen. Anybody know who that is? Look, sometimes people just ask for nicknames, okay? This is our former beloved youth pastor, Hunter Siegler, apparently hard at work at his new job in San Antonio. And he sends me this kind of stuff, and I just think, do you want me to call you Olaf for the rest of the time that I, what do you want to happen when you send me this kind of thing? What I actually said to him is, I see the rest of the Olaf costume behind you, and I want you to put it on. And it made me think of this picture. Anybody know who that guy is? That is not an extra from Braveheart. That is your current interim youth pastor, one Jacob Graves. And Jake told me a couple of weeks ago that in high school he had the nickname Mighty Mouse. Mighty Mouse. And I said, how in the world did you get the nickname Mighty Mouse? And he said, well, I went to youth camp and I have snooped on Jake's Facebook and I think that this was youth camp at some point in your high school career. Jake says, I went to youth camp and he says, believe it or not, in high school I was even smaller than I am now. And I was so small and scrawny, he said, we had this wrestling. I don't think that it was sanctioned by the camp, but a wrestling tournament in the cabin amongst all the high school boys. And Jake, the littlest guy, won the wrestling tournament. And so everyone starts calling him Mighty Mouse. So look, there's a couple of ways to get a nickname. Sometimes you just ask for it, like Hunter. We could go through his list. Sometimes you just get it because of something that happens. You're not really looking for it. Thomas gets a nickname here. Think about this. This nickname has lasted for about 2,000 years. Doubting Thomas. Okay? I'm about to say something to you. This is a parenthesis within a parenthesis. I don't think that this is theologically correct, but it makes my point. When you die and go to heaven, if you walk up to Thomas and call him Doubting Thomas, he might punch you in the face. I'm just giving you a warning, fair warning. I don't think there's any punching in heaven, but I'm just telling you, this is a rough deal, Doubting Thomas. I would just want to say out loud, if you rewind the tape to John 11, Jesus has almost been executed in John 10. They literally picked up rocks to stone him for blasphemy. And they ran away, and they left Jerusalem and Judea. And it's Thomas in John 11 who says, when Jesus is about to take them back to Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem, it's Thomas who says, look, we all know what happened the last time we were there. They tried to kill him. What else are we going to do? Let's go. If we have to die with him, we have to die with him. And I bet Thomas would rather you remember that. The one guy who piped up and said, let's go with him even if it means that we die. Let's go. He was willing. He was bold. He said that out loud. He gets stuck with this name, Doubting Thomas. He says, I will not believe until I see so that brings us to the third scene here. Jesus tells Thomas, excuse me, John tells us that Thomas referred to Jesus as Lord and God. Lord and God. Just look at this part of the story with me. Verse 26 says that the disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. 
and the doors were locked. They told us before the doors were locked because they were afraid of the Jews. So they're concerned. Their leader has been executed. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't do the same to his followers. So the doors are locked. Jesus shows up. He stands among them, and he says to Thomas nothing about being doubting Thomas. He doesn't label him with a name. He just encourages Thomas and invites Thomas to believe. Don't disbelieve, but believe. If there's a rebuke in that statement, it's very gentle. There's no making fun of Thomas. There's no putting Thomas's picture up on the screen for all the disciples to see. None of that. Thomas, don't disbelieve but believe. And look what Thomas says in response. He answers verse 28, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. It's one of the clearest statements of Jesus' divinity being acknowledged by his disciples in all of the New Testament. And it's another thread being pulled all the way from the book of Genesis up to the present passage. It's a callback to John 1, 1, where we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us, verse 14, but he was and he remains forever truly God. It reminds you of Genesis 2, 8 that says, the Lord God, the Lord God. In Genesis 1, God is referred to as God, Elohim, the creator. In Genesis 2, we meet this term, the Lord, Yahweh. His personal name is included in the narrative. Genesis 2.8 includes both of them. The Lord God did this. And John tells us that Thomas, believing, looks at Jesus and acknowledges him as Lord and God. Lord and God. I want you to see that Jesus is the second Adam who came to undo the damage caused, the curse caused by the first Adam in his rebellion. Adam, the first Adam, was warned about this. Look at the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 17. Can we put that one up on the screen? 2.17. Oh, maybe I don't have 2.17 on there. There it is. He's warned. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And then Genesis 3.19, it comes about, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. The Lord God gave these instructions. He issued these warnings to the first Adam. And the result was rebellion and sin and death and curse. But now, the Lord God himself has come to undo all of these things. And it brings us to the last thought. John tells us that Jesus came to bring life. He came to bring life. First Adam ushers in death. Second Adam comes to bring life. I hope 
that here at the tail end of the Gospel of John, you are getting tired of me putting up on the screen and referencing John 20, verse 30 to 31. I hope you're almost getting tired of it. Because if you're almost getting tired of it, that means it's actually starting to seep into your brain. Some of you remember when we went through the Gospel of Luke, every week for years, we talked about Luke 19.10. And some of you cannot help but say, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And you rolled your eyes at me every week when I made you say it out loud or read it or think about it. But now it's stuck in your brain. And so two more weeks after this morning, we're going to talk about John 20, 30 to 31. Here it is. It's very simple. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, may have life in his name. He came that you could have life. He is the second Adam. He came to bear the curse and undo all the wrong caused by the first Adam. First Adam plunges us into death. The second Adam provides us with life. You come to the end of this and you say, what would John have me do? How would John have me respond to Jesus, the second Adam? Surely, surely, what John would have us to do is straighten up, learn our lesson, be good people. Don't be like the first Adam. Right? Be like second Adam. Straighten up, learn your lesson, be a good person. Surely that's what he wants, right? Eh, maybe. There's a place for all of those things in the Christian faith. Straightening up. The Bible calls it repentance. The Bible describes it as sanctification. There's a place for straightening up in the Christian faith. Learning your lesson. The Bible describes that as growing in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord God, of growing as a disciple. There's a place for learning and taking in lessons. Being a good person, the Bible describes Jesus as the truly good person and being like him as being Christ-like. That's an important thing. All of those things have their place, but they're not the first step in responding to Jesus. And John, hoping that you have life, wants you to do some basic things before you worry about the straighten up part, before you worry about I've got to get it all figured out and learn all this stuff, before you worry about I've got to be a better person, a good person, John wants you to do three things. Here they are in this passage. Number one, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Christian faith is rooted on faith, belief. This is not just an intellectual acceptance of certain truths, but it is resting on the good news of the gospel. Verse 27, 28, 29, Thomas is encouraged to believe. Thomas, what I need from you now is not fixing anything, it's just believing. Believe. And he talks to Thomas about, Thomas, there will be people who don't see me, and yet they believe. They have faith. John wrote this gospel for those sorts of people. They didn't get to see Jesus raised from the dead, but he wrote these things down that you might believe. This is how a sinful person enters into a relationship with the holy God. It's faith. It's believing the good news about Jesus Christ. Number one, believe. Number two, rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in the gospel. Verse 16, John doesn't tell us everything we might want to know, but you can 
feel, as you read the story, you can feel the joy in Mary's voice when she says to Jesus, Rabbani, right? The light bulb goes off and she knows it's him. She's clinging to him. There's joy. Uh, You see it. When you look at verse 20, the disciples see Jesus come stand in their midst. It's a remarkable understatement. They're glad. They're glad. There's joy, right? When we talk about believing in Jesus, it's not just I accept these historical truths, and it's not even I rest on these historical truths, but it's also a rejoicing that these historical truths are good news, and we rejoice. The word rejoice literally means we worship with joy. Our response is worship. Our response is joyful. Our response is believing. Lastly, number three, we bear witness to the gospel. Or you could just say we talk about the gospel. Everyone in this story is sent out to talk, to say something. Mary, verse 17 and 18, go tell my friends. Go tell the disciples. Verse 23, the disciples, you're going to go out with a message of the forgiveness of sins. Go tell people about that. Verse 29, there will be people who don't see, but they do believe because somebody's going to tell them the good news. Verse 30 to 31, John wrote these things. He's telling you this story. He's talking about the gospel. He's bearing witness to the gospel that you might believe. You and I don't go out and talk about Jesus so that he will love us. We go out and talk about Jesus because he does love us because he's the second Adam who came to undo the curse that we deserved and to give us life, although we were under a sentence of death. Here's the beauty of this story and this idea that Jesus is the second Adam. It's the Bible coming full circle, going all the way back to the beginning and saying, here's the true fulfillment, the true second Adam. And because the Bible is a story that comes full circle, you can come full circle. You, created in the image and the likeness of God, created to honor and glorify God with your life, are a sinner. You've fallen short. The wages, the consequence, the result of your sin is death and estrangement from God. It's the wrath of God being poured out on you forever. And yet, because the Bible comes full circle, you can come full circle. That's not all that the Bible has to say about your relationship with God. There's also this really important part about Jesus, the second Adam, being obedient where the first Adam failed and dying to take the curse of God and the wrath of God and death that you deserved. And the result of all of it is that you can have life. You can have life. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. God doesn't expect you to pay him back for it. You can have life. Not only do you have life, but you get to be a part of God taking that good news to the ends of the earth, making disciples of all nations, talking about the gospel, bearing witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. This story comes full circle. Yours can too. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for these resurrection appearances and for this big picture 
idea that Jesus is the second Adam who's come to undo the curse and who's come to bring life to people who are dead. Father, make us people who believe this morning. Make us people who rejoice in the good news of the gospel. Father, make us people who are eager out of the overflow of our heart to go out and to talk about the good news of the gospel, to bear witness to the truth about Jesus.